I'm Danielle. I'm Priam. And this is Snow in the Mountains. Well, good morning, lady. Good morning, Danielle. We have been so busy, the two of us. Um, Just another example of our crazy cosmic connection. Fran and I are both packing our tiny little carry-ons and we're both heading to Europe and we're both going to different places and we did not plan to leave town at the same time together but we're we're leaving we're out of here um Fran you're heading off to London that's right I'm heading off to London I'm gonna see the coronation I'm taking my uh, parents remains back to a little town in uh, Somerset County is on the west coast a little town called east woodlands and um, my mother asked me to do that so i'm going to do that a little church called saint Catharines. how sweet that's going to be such a wonderful emotional i mean you're going to go the whole spectrum of emotions on your trip yeah, I, I wanted to do it earlier, but you know, COVID prevented that. But oh, and you have the same. It's a, it's so uh, it's so unusual that we both kind of have the same uh, predetermined kind of uh, destiny here. You're taking your grandmother. Yeah, it's wild. So we we lost my grandfather in October, um, just last year, 2022. Um, very sad, not tragic. I mean, 98 years is a long, wonderful life, and. Um, when we lost my grandfather, we asked my Nana, you know, what is left on your bucket list? What can we do for you? You know, we wanted to give her something to look forward to and she said she wanted to see home one more time. So we are taking her back to Sicily. My mom, my youngest sister, Anne-Marie and I are taking Nana. Um, you know, it's going to be her last like big trip. She, you know, she can still travel domestically, you know, to see us and all that around the U S but, um, yeah, we're going to take her to this little town outside of Catania, San Gregorio, where she grew up. Um, we're actually going to, you know, we're doing most of the whole island. We'll be gone 10 days, just like you will be. But um, it's going to be magical. Again, emotional, but really cool. And I I know I personally am very excited to um, explore history with her and hear her stories. And, um, you know, it's just... I can't believe I get this opportunity. So this will be our um, our last day of recording for a while. I'm going to miss you. Yes. I'm glad we have several episodes recorded for our, our patrons to listen to. Well, yeah, we don't want to leave you guys hanging. While we're off gallivanting the globe, you know, we want to make sure you're still getting all this good, you know, historical true crime for your ear holes. So Fran and I today are going to cover... Um, another Georgia case, another instance of Fran having to step in and, and rectify the situation that some awful people have created. And um, we do have a, a trigger warning for you this week. This case, the green ghost of Maranatha um, does come along with some incidents of child abuse and sexual assault. So, um, you know, please be advised as you listen that, um, you know, this this episode contains some some scary content. So with that, we're going to get into it. Okay, Fran, take us back to 1977. Yes, Danielle, I was a new agent 
brand new agent. I'd come on in December of 1976. And um, of course, you know, that period of time with not many females in the state, I was automatically thrown into cases that involved uh, rapes, child abuse, child molestations, because, you know, none of the men really wanted to work those cases. Well, I'm, and, um, you know, I'm glad that they, for, for whatever reasons, maybe not the right reasons, but I think it is good to have a woman, you know, oh, in those situations for the victims to maybe feel a bit more safe and secure and, you know, for that relatability factor. So. And it did. They, 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 you know, they, historically you can always count on the fact that uh, women relate to children in a much easier, um, profound way than men do in regards to uh, abuse and neglect. You know, they're just more of a, God just created it that way that there's a more comfort in that. Yeah. Anyway, and um, this this case evolved from two young girls. They were uh, a little bit less than 12 years old. I only recall one of them's first name because we have no written record. record. Uh, one of them was named Ruby. And uh, two of them ran away to a uh, either a grocery store or a residence. I want to say it was a residence. And they called the sheriff's office because they had been uh, assaulted by a uh, director of a children's home in Sandy Cross, Georgia, which is in Franklin County, Georgia. Ugh. And um, the perpetrator was uh, Philip Epps. And he is 26 years old. And and Philip's father is Paul Epps, and his mother is Ruth Epps. So they actually started this children's home in uh, 1969. It was only licensed for one year by the state, and that was in 1973, as, as further investigation showed. But Classic. they were really, really never licensed. Well, it feels like... Um... I really don't think this is going to be a, a, a nice story, right? So shame on the state for not following through and making sure that they had all the pieces in order because had this been licensed and had there been some regulation at this children's home, perhaps we wouldn't have this awful story to tell. That's true. So the girls ran away. I did interviews on both of them. And uh, we got them into um, a foster home uh, for their protection. And they alleged that Philip had assaulted them, sexually assaulted them. And they also talked about the physical abuse uh, at the home by um, uh, Paul Epps and his, and his wife, Ruth. There was a talk about this instrument they called the Green Ghost, which was a green plastic type paddle that was used to beat the children. And at that time, there were somewhere around 50 to 60 children. Now, the, the strange thing about this that I found just profoundly unbelievable was how these children got into this alleged orphanage was um, uh, this, this came about where maybe an elderly parent, an elderly grandparent uh, could no longer take care of grandchildren. Maybe their 
daughter was in rehab or their, their son was in jail or for whatever reason, they just could not take care of, you know, young children anymore. So they would drop right. them off at this alleged orphanage mm -hmm. uh, under the auspices of it being a Christian, you know, children's home. Sure. Um, and so there was, when we did the investigation, we found a piece of paper, a single piece of paper that documented that the uh, person that was uh, the legal uh, person responsible for this child was actually, you know, legally transferring that almost like ownership of the yeah. child over to the home. Yeah, the custodianship. Right. Or guardianship. And so it was just kind of bizarre that they would just say, here, here's my kid and sign this one piece of paper and, and they're done. And so uh, the, ch the home took in lots of children over the, over the years that they operated. And uh, we, we knew that they had traveled all over Georgia doing choirs and singing at churches. I think we've even found some photographs. Yeah, we have found some photos of that. And I actually have this article. Um, it's from the Ledger Inquirer, written by Beverly Greer. Um, this article was published on Tuesday, March 15th, 1977, and it's titled Sing for Supper. And you know how in like horror movies, there's always like a children's choir? Yes. I mean, I just, there is something so horrifying about this article. It just makes me think of, of that, you know, it's supposed to be sweet and angelic, but in a situation like this, it's just eerie to me to imagine these children singing. So I'm going to read you a bit of this article. It says the children from the Maranatha children's home in Royston, Georgia are back in town, ready to sing for their supper, but they're a couple of meals short in rounding out their engagements in the city due to cancellations by some area churches. They're looking for a church or organization to sing for tonight and Thursday night in return for a meal for 27 youngsters aged seven to 20. The arrival of the children in Columbus last year created something of a sensation through a mishap. The young driver of their bus, who takes children to singing engagements throughout the South, crawled underneath the bus to check on a bent axle while the bus rested on a jack. The jack fell, and so did the bus, landing on Reverend Nick Northrup's, or I'm sorry, Rick Northrup's head and pinning him beneath the bus. Surgeons at the time predicted that Northrup would never speak or preach again due to brain and nerve damage. Although he's still blind in one eye and deaf in one ear from the accident, he's back singing and preaching. Um, you know, there's the article goes on, but. I mean, is that a, is that a premonition? Is that a, is that foreshadowing for the dark history that's going to follow this home? You know, I just think it's, it just is all very creepy. There's also stories on the internet that people felt like the home was haunted. I, I don't believe the home was haunted. Uh, this was a typical um, red brick building, large building with a gymnasium, lots of school rooms and uh, it was, uh, I think it was built in, do we, did we have some information about when it was built? I think it was built in like the, the 20s or the 30s. So I don't know exactly um, what year it was built, but it was in the 30s. Um, it was abandoned, obviously, after this children's, the Maranatha Children's Home closed. Um, the community restored it in 1981 and it became the sandy cross community center so you had said um didn't you drive past it fairly recently 
Yes, I did. It's been within the last six months, and I just got this really bad feeling when I went by it. The grounds had changed. Uh, in fact, um, after I had interviewed the two girls, um, we went and got, you know, arrest warrants for um, Philip Epps and Paul Epps, and uh, they uh, were arrested. Uh, originally, they went on the run. I think Paul went on the run. He was later captured. But um, they were arrested and they were uh, convicted and, and went to, to jail for a while. I remember during court that um, during one of the proceedings, they, they all pled the fifth, which just tells you automatically they're guilty. Wow. Uh, certain certain questions they were asked. Yeah. But um, when I, when I went, rode by the old school, um, I remembered that there were lots of trees out front. And I remember interviewing lots of the children while the school was still, you know, while this was still an ongoing investigation, I would take children out to under a tree where there were, um, you know, uh, benches and chairs and interview them. The unfortunate part of that was the children had to go back into school. Right. So I went before uh, Judge Ray Burroughs, who was the Superior Court judge at the time over there, and myself and the other agent that was working with me. Uh, we told them this is an environment that is not, you know, conducive for these children to be able to survive and live in because they know if they speak to me in the truth that, you know, they're going to be punished. So he immediately shut the school down. In other words, it was just completely closed. Well, and, so uh, you had to rehome the defects. Yeah, defects had to step in and find homes for 50 children that night. Ugh, it's pretty, so that traumatic. Was pretty tough. I mean, tough. you know, even if let's say all of the kids weren't suffering the same types of abuse or, you know, maybe some were spared, which would just be a miracle, but um, you know, just the sheer terror of knowing what's happening to the kid that sleeps on the cot next to you. And then what will happen mm -hmm. to them when they're all separated, you know, the bonds that they form, you know, with right. each other, um, you know, emotionally, this is just so devastating. Every piece of it, it the story just gets worse, you know, <laughs> as you keep it giving does. me the details. I remember, I do remember one instance, it was the day after the two girls had run away and reported the sexual uh, assault. The next day when I went into the school, uh, and I can only liken it to a Jim Jones-like, you know, Guyana um, very environment. Culty. Yeah, yeah very cult, very cultish. And there was in, in the gymnasium, you have to picture this old gymnasium with wooden floors with the stage. And on top of the stage were two young boys. They were like 12 and 14 years old. And they were actually preaching to the children that we, myself and the other agents, we were evil. We were going to take their home away. They were not going to have anywhere to live. And that, you know, we were sent by the devil. I mean, it was it was a terrible, terrible environment. So I that mean, was the day that I immediately called and told the judge that we've got to do something today. Well, <laughs> we can't leave them there one more day. Yeah, that's horrifying. I mean, you are literally there to save their lives. And yeah, but they have that been so grooming. brainwashed at that point. Yes. And, and you know, the, it's the grooming that takes place. So, you know, cult I think of brainwashing sexual assault I think of grooming and you know I'm sure that those two terms have some overlap in their definition however um putting those walls up and you know 
damaging children and scaring them out of, you know, the desire to be free of these abuses, this is, this is sick. And to be using somebody's faith against them, I think is one of the sickest things a person can do. Well, it's not uncommon. I mean, I've, I've seen it other times where you have, um, this type of affiliation and, and, and lots of us have read about it in papers in other states where this cultish attitude, uh, you know, oversees their um, mental acumen to understand that this is not how normal society lives. This right. is not normal to, to be exposed to these kind of things and just, you know, it's not okay to do this to children and to yeah. even to young adults and, and in cult cases, adults that just succumb to this because they don't right. know any other way. Yeah. Well, and you think, you know, this is 1977, <clears throat> excuse me, this is 1977. These children, you know, there's no internet. Um, these children probably have extremely limited access to the outside world. Maybe they can send and receive letters, but it's not like, you know, it's such a controlled, <clears throat> it's such a controlled environment where the directors and the staff who are this family, the Epps family, are absolutely filtering what they are teaching the kids, what, you know, what knowledge they receive from the outside world. So they're very much in a bubble and it's a bubble created by abusers Consequently, there was also another uh, case that was going on at the same time that I was working this case um, in uh, the Anderson um, newspaper reported this, which was separate from my case. Um, there was warrants taken out for an E.W. Porter uh, or by E.W. Porter. He's the father of two daughters that um, age seven and 14 in March 1977. Uh, a Reverend Bill Boyd, a Royston minister, um, was charged with two counts of kidnapping. Uh, two of the girls were taken um, from um, that area, and they have connection to Maranatha Children's Home, and they were taken to Quincy, Florida, and subsequently um, the father charged uh, this uh, Mr. Reverend Boyd with uh, kidnapping. So that was kind of a parallel case. So there were two cases that ran along at the same time. One was run by the sheriff's office, and then we we did the one with the uh, the children's home and getting it closed, and it was closed May the second of nineteen seventy seven, and that's um, I have found a few um, sites where um, there are some children that have spoken about their you know time at the home and what happened and I don't know if they would be willing to come forward and talk about that and yeah. discuss what they have gone through in the past may not they may not want to be willing to do that but I certainly would be uh, willing to listen to them and would like to hear from them if they would like to come forward they could contact us Yep, we have we have reached out um, to some of the survivors of the Maranatha Children's Home uh, through a couple different avenues. So if we're able to um, conduct any interviews, um, that's certainly something that we would share on the podcast. Um, but, you know, it's such a personal thing. And I mean, look, I, I won't be 
upset if somebody does not want to relive their personal traumatic history and share this with us. I mean, I'm sure that it's difficult enough to to live with what happened every day. Um, as a matter of fact, there's a there's a blog that you had sent me, Fran, uh, the haunted cheese stands alone And a guest had posted um, several years ago on here. It was an awful place. I was there when I was about 10 years old. The only ghost in there that I can remember was the green ghost. Ask any adult that was in the so-called Christian children's home as a kid about the green ghost. They'll remember. Do some research and find out why they closed the home down. I'm 53 years old now and will never forget the beatings I and all the other kids got. Some of the people that worked there at the time should be in jail still today for the things they did. I know it and they know it. Look up Philip. You know his last name. He worked there too. Just a bunch of evil people. Believe me, I could name names and tell a lot of stuff, as could a lot more kids that were there. Um, I mean that. You know these are these are memories from these children that never go away. But I must tell these children they were very, uh, the ones that came forward were very strong. It's a very brave thing that they did to do this and to encourage those people that are, um, you know, in these situations to come forward. It's, it's a hard thing to do, but it must be done. And I want to also say to them that it took um, a part of their life that they're not going to get back, but it doesn't define who they are. Right. It makes them the person that God wanted them to be today for many reasons, for, for all the things that have happened, has happened in their life, whatever those things are, are, are a part of this action that happened in their life. Yeah. And they have to look at that as a thing that was, that happened for the good, for the betterment of their life. And I don't know that, that they have had more trials or tribulations, or if they suffered more after this, I just know that God has a way to heal these wounds and make you go forward uh, and, and use that hurt in a better way to, you know, help heal yourself and help to heal others from your experience. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a lot of, um, it's a lot of introspective work to be able to, you know, whether you try to understand or heal through therapy or from, you know, working alongside others that were in the same situation as you, you know, keeping that community intact, um, whatever the the path is towards finding some peace in your past. I certainly hope that each one of these children was afforded that opportunity. Um, yeah, this, uh, the blog I, goes I on. Only, I only hope that, that whatever we did to get the home closed gave them a better life. And I, I, I truly do believe that. I hope that they, have had a better life yeah from being absolutely. from being out of that situation do you have any information about the role that ruth played in all of this because looking at that blogs you know somebody yeah. discusses the fact that ruth was just as involved as both of the men yeah so we didn't have any enough evidence to arrest her for anything unfortunately um she you know Hopefully he's had to pay for her dirty deeds and ill ill will and the things, the evil things that she did throughout her life. And God will take care of the rest of that. But uh, no, they, they, there was uh, not enough evidence to arrest her. 
you know, physical evidence to present to a jury. Only two arrested were Philip and Paul, the father and the son, for the uh, sexual abuse and for the, you know, cruelty to children. And they didn't get enough time. And the at that period of time, those those uh, charges did not yield very lengthy sentences as they do today. The sentences today are much longer. Well, that's good to know. But I mean, did these men serve? I mean, anywhere near adequate yes. time for the they did serve they time adequate. I won't say. I don't know. I would say they probably served at least a year to two years of time. Wow. Okay, we're back from break, and I've got another article here that Fran and I found from newspapers.com. This is from Friday, May 27th, 1977, in the Anderson Independent, written by Leah Kahn. It says, Philip Epps, 26, former principal of the Maranatha Children's Home School in Sandy Cross, has been released on a $30,000 bail, according to the Franklin County Sheriff's Department. Epps is charged with two counts of kidnapping and the alleged abduction of two Anderson, South Carolina children and one count of statutory rape, which is not connected with the kidnapping, according to the GBI. Um, And that was Agent R.C. McCracken. Mm -hmm. Um, That was my supervisor. Oh, really? Epps allegedly took the girls ages 7 and 14 to Tacoa, Chattanooga, Tennessee, Athens, and on to Quincy, Florida, where they were found in a children's home. The children have been returned to their parents, Mr. and Mrs. E.W. Porter of Anderson, South Carolina. A Royston minister, the Reverend Bill Boyd, and two juveniles were also arrested in connection with the alleged kidnapping. So actually, as it turns out, the Bill Boyd case and the Epps case ended up coming together in the end. That's true. It did. So, Fran, what else can you tell us about the licensing? Because this massive failure on, you know, the part of the state, there's got to be something out there. Yes, Danielle, um, I was very upset uh, to learn when I was there that they really didn't have a license and had not had a license. Um, They had been operation since 1969. Uh, This was now, you know, 77 So many years had passed and infrequent visits by an inspector to see if they were going to be uh, selected for licensing just, it just failed. It just fell by the wayside. I don't know if he was, you know, taking day trips for barbecue or what, but he didn't (laughs) do his job. That's for sure. Yeah. I I hate to say that, but you know, you don't just let something keep going on uh, with uh, all of these failures in you know, there was there was no stop safe here for these children. There was nothing to protect them other than if it had been licensed and they had failed, which they, obviously they failed through criminal activity. Uh, I feel like he just he just totally failed his job. And uh, well, everybody deserves. Yeah, everybody deserves fair treatment. And to be treated, you know, with respect, but I mean, certainly children, you know, such vulnerable little people, I mean, really depend on regulation in order to make sure that those without a voice, you know, have the proper type of care. So, right. well, the Anderson Independent in May of uh, 26th of 1977 did a great job of uh outlining this uh, problem, uh, an article by Leah Kahn uh, in the Georgia Bureau stated that um, 
the home was finally closed May the second by the uh, by its board of directors after the court ordered investigation. Well, that was court ordered by Superior Court Judge Ray Burroughs. And um, the uh, it had operated without a license for seven of eight years. Now, how does that happen? Seven of eight wow. years. Um, and it had also violated state regulations by using the children's choir to solicit funds for the institution. According to Eugene Calhoun, social service consultant with the licensing, licensing service unit in the Division of Community Services of the Department of Human Resources, that's a mouthful, <laughs> the uh, home had been issued a one-year temporary license from 1973 to 74. After the one-year temporary license had expired, neither a temporary or a permanent license was issued. Uh, the home had been in operation, like I said, since 1969. The article goes on to say, the, Ch the Children and Youth Act of 1963 requires that all child care institutions be licensed annually by the Department of Human Resources. Uh, when questioned why the home was not closed after the 73-74 temporary license had expired, Calhoun explained that uh, he would go back and forth to the home, but he never got the total amount of information at one time that was necessary to issue a license. However, the home was making some progress towards meeting the state requirements um, before a license could be issued. Uh, I think Calhoun could have summed it up in just a few words, and he could have just said that he really shit the bed on this one. I mean, that is just ludicrous. Yeah, he he uh, he just let him he just let him ride. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what you know what kind of um, story uh, Mr. Mr. and Miss Epps told him, or what you know what they what kind of show the children put on for him when he got there. Uh, I don't, I really don't know what his, uh, I would love to hear from him if he's still alive, why he felt like it, they should just stay on. Of course, he didn't have any idea they were being abused at the time, I'm sure. Um, he, he went on to say that, you know, many homes legitimately don't know what they need in a license and some of them open up anyway and after they've been checked for a license, even after they've been checked for licensing. He was he is the only state official who conducts a study of childcare institutions before it is licensed. So one, does that mean he was the only single one person agent. in Georgia that did this? Right. That's well, a, I mean, no outrageous. wonder he couldn't keep up with his work, that or barbecue. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, you know, that's a that's a big load to fall on one person's shoulders. And I mean, truly shame on the state, because if one person is trying to do all of this work, you just know it's not going to be done. You're spread way too thin. And who does the state respond to? You know, who oversees that the state is doing things properly? So this is just a shameful set of circumstances that, you know, really lead to some serious trauma for a large group of children. Yeah, he, he did say he came and did surprise visits, uh, unannounced visits to the children's home. Uh, he said the home allegedly violated state policy concerning forced exploitation of the children when a 
when a chorus consisting of children went to an area of churches to sing and ask for donations for the home, which under the law they were not allowed to do. Um, I don't know. I, I think it's probably a combination of several things. I think it's a combination of lack of manpower in the state to conduct adequate inspections. I think it was uh, he probably had too much, uh, too many cases on his plate to yeah. to handle. And uh, do I want to say, do I want to give him the benefit of the doubt? Maybe so a little bit, uh, at least a little bit. If he's the only sole person in the state of Georgia that's doing this, obviously he can't do his job well enough to, to handle it. Yeah. Well, who knows how he was able to sleep at night after finding out what was really going on here. And I actually have some details, again, from the Anderson Independent. We are relying heavily on them. They've done a great job uh, covering this case. But um, this is the story of a boy named Greg Nunnally who lived in the home. And um, this was in May of 1977. His mother at some point had tried to remove him from the home. And she was told by the Epps family that, uh, quote, they told me I was ruining Greg's life by not allowing him to stay there with him. So she was able to sign a piece of paper and get little Greg out. Um, she said, it wasn't until we got home that I noticed Greg had bruises on his body underneath his clothes. So at that point, he was taken to uh, the emergency room at a local hospital for examination. He had cuts on his arm and knee where he'd been hit with the side of the green ghost paddle. Mm -hmm. um, he had bruises on his backside between his waist and his knees from the paddle. Um, the article goes on to talk about what happens, um, you know, if there are allegations of abuse in a children's home. And I'm hopeful that the uh, process here has changed a little bit in favor of a, a more harsh penalty for these sort of crimes. But this states that if a staff member is involved in any sort of abuse, the Institute is warned that the license is jeopardized. And in most cases, the offending staff member is fired and the investigation is closed. Well, in this case, the home wasn't even licensed. And who knows if they were firing staff members for these abuses, because it sounds to me like the whole the whole of them were in on this. I mean, see something, say something. Right. right. Um, so Mrs. Nunnally goes on to say that Greg's three-week tenure at the Maranatha Children's Home. He was only there for three weeks. Mm. Set him back a year and a half in his emotional development. And his psychologist uh, agreed. The psychologist said Greg was in really bad shape emotionally when he came back from the Maranatha Children's Home. He was in worse shape than I'd ever seen him. Mrs. Nunnally said she didn't pursue the matter legally at the time because the alleged beating occurred uh, because she was not financially able she did not comment on whether she would file suit on any of the allegations, but Greg was enrolled later in a different school in Atlanta, and his psychologist is quoted as saying, Greg has made significant progress since he's been at the Village of St. Joseph School. He's had a good experience at this school, and it's taken Greg a long time to feel better about himself. Maranatha did not help. So, uh, yes, you know, and I believe that, you know, because of cases like this and children's homes that were like this. That created better uh, rules and regulations for the homes that we have now. Absolutely. And unfortunately, sure those so. children that ha are survivors of the Maranatha Children Home, they all contributed to that. They all were a part of that, making the the homes that are out there now and the schools that are out there now under regulations 
they all made that better. So I hope that they understand what they went through was something that has attributed to a better environment for other children that has uh, come through systems like this. Yeah. And I mean, you know, typically laws and regulations are put in place once you figure out that there's uh, something that you need to regulate, you know, Um, unfortunately, there a red flag has to be raised in order for people to understand that something needs to be done to prevent that from happening again. That's true. Fran, as a as a mom to two kids who are currently at the age that a lot of these children were in the Maranatha Children's Home um, in the late 70s, I just am appalled to hear that, you know, these innocent young children um, who who likely came from not ideal situations to begin with, and that's the reason they're in this home, were subjected to the abuses of uh, you know, mostly the Epps family, um, knowing that um, the Epps men and even, you know, the mom who was not prosecuted at all, knowing that they did not really serve a lot of time for this. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't wish ill on anybody, but I do know that the recidivism rate for, um, you know, abusers and particularly pedophiles, you know, it's 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 pretty high. There's a pretty high likelihood that somebody would continue to conduct these abuses once they've served their time. So I can only hope that um, these men were not able to victimize any other children or anybody at all um, as their lives went on. And I don't know what came of any of the Epps family, but um, I'm glad this story has come to an end because these things are not easy to talk about. And I'm sure they're not easy to hear as listeners, you know? They're not. Like I said, I, I'm very, um, I was very thankful that those two young ladies ran away and it was a brave thing to do. And that was the whole reason the home got closed was because of their actions. And I'm, I know they were scared to death and couldn't go back, but you know, it takes a brave person to do something like this, to, to bring, you know, these situations forward. And, um, you know, even if it, a lot of times uh, somebody once told me, you know, even if, even if you think it's the wrong thing you do, to do, you still have to do it uh, to make it right. And um, that's what these two young ladies did. And I hope they have uh, thrived and made a better of their life from that uh, situation. Absolutely. It's not easy to stand up and do the right thing sometimes, especially when fear and control are holding you back. You know, people in authoritative positions of power, such as directors of the home that you live in, the people that feed you and provide you with shelter, um, it's not easy to stand up. So we commend those girls for their bravery. Absolutely. Well, Fran, thank you for sharing this story with us. Um, Always interesting to know what's going on. Even though we're going to be out of the country having the time of our lives, we um, hope you guys will hop on next week and listen in. We've got another story for you about another somebody who was doing something bad. And um, Fran, thanks again. Thank you, Danielle. You have a terrific trip. And we will talk to the world when we get back. Thanks, Fran. I'll miss you. And you guys out there, please behave. We'll see you next time. Bye for now.
If you are the victim of abuse or know somebody who's the victim of abuse, we encourage you to contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. That's 1-800-799-7233. You can also text the word START to 88788. It's important that we look out for each other. We're all worth it. Snow in the Mountains is recorded in North Georgia by Fran Bishop and co-host and producer Danielle Eigelhart. Find us on social media at snowinthemountains.pod or email us at snowinthemountainspodcast at gmail.com. Your listens, follows, likes, and shares help our show greatly and are much appreciated. New episodes are released every Wednesday. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen. 